Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Volume Podcast Network. It's Thursday. It's Oscars week. That means it's time to enter the Thursday Thunderdome. On today's show, our special guests will compete alongside my co-host, my BFF, my companion, professional sports better, Simon Hunter, in an epic test of wagers and wits that will chew them up and spit them out like a tainted batch of bazooka. Hello, Simon. Hello, Chad. I'm, I'm noticing a theme here. We had a 420 show, and then today is Earth Day. It's, very, uh, it's a hippie week for us here on the Action Network. Totally tubular, dude. We are rad like that. I'm feeling 420-esque good. Simon, today you've got two really strong challengers. Our first guest is a true Hollywood insider, a top talent manager at Mosaic in Los Angeles, and recently named, and I say recently like, you know, within the past three years, one of the 40 most powerful People in Comedy by The Hollywood Reporter, also an Oscar savant, Michael Lasker. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Great great to be here. Thanks for that intro. Listen, I, I could go on longer. I feel like if anyone has laughed at anything on any streaming service in the past 13 months, there's a very good chance you are involved in it or someone you represent is involved in it. That's how powerful you are. That's giving me way too much credit, but thank you. More importantly, you are something of an Oscar savant. Like if I asked you to name the best picture nominees from a year, random year, say like 1994, could you do it? Yes, e easily. Give me the best picture nominees from 1994. The best picture nominees. Well, one thing I want to be clear on, because people debate this all the time. When you say a year as related to the Oscars, any true Oscar insider knows it's the year the movies were released. So it's the 1994 released years. That would be the 95 like Oscars technically, because that's when the show aired. So for 94, it's of course, Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, Quiz Show, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And it's a legendary year because Forrest Gump won. And, you know, you had two other candidates, you know, that are like famous movies forever with Shawshank and Pulp Fiction that some people thought should have won. So a great year for movies, regardless. You have proven your Hollywood insiderness and your total <laughs> geekiness all in one very technical answer. <laughs> My pleasure. You are perfect for the Thunderdome. Our second guest may be, and I think I've told her this, Outside of my family, and sometimes including my family, my favorite person in the world, she commands a cabal of hardworking gambling writers. She's the second most notable alum in the history of Azusa Pacific University, Katie Rich Creek. Hello, Katie. Hello. Thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm honored to be right up there with Christian Okoye on this list of APU alum. All right. Here's how the game is played today. You'll all answer two kinds of questions. First, traditional trivia questions about sports, sports betting, the world at large, in this case, Oscars. Second, completely subjective and totally asinine, open-ended questioner prompts that I alone will judge. And a reminder for Michael and for Katie... I'm generally rooting for Simon, and I'm going to do my best to make sure that he puts himself in a position to win um, by the end of the show. To accumulate points, you must answer the trivia questions correctly and also convince me that your responses to those open-ended prompts 
are better than the responses from your opponents. Because just like sports betting, you can't get them all right. Let's begin. Part one, all things Oscars. Today, we'll be celebrating the 93rd presentation of the Academy Awards taking place this Sunday night. And while American sportsbooks taking bets on the Oscars is exciting, those golden statues aren't the only Oscars worth talking about. To prove who the real Oscars expert is, I'll ask you three questions. One about the Oscars, the award. One about sports figures named Oscar. And one about Oscars in pop culture. Katie, here is your Oscars award question. This actor is one of the greatest film performers of all time. He's been nominated for a Best Actor Oscar six times and has won a record three times, including in 2000. 13 for Lincoln. He, the, the answer is not named Oscars. It's just Oscar topics. Yes, correct. So, so it's who, Daniel Day-Lewis. Very good. Also, I was going to be so embarrassed for you in front of Michael Lasker, who's a incredibly powerful person in Hollywood and an Oscar expert, if on the first question, when we're touting you as the Oscar expert at action and having listened to your podcast about the Oscars, hearing you get that wrong would have been sad. Here no, is been your uh, sports Oscar question. This boxer, oh my God, nicknamed the Golden Boy, earned Olympic gold in 92, was the world's top-rated pound-for-bound fighter in 97, 98. Oscar De La Hoya. That's so easy. That's, that's embarrassing. Katie, here's your pop culture question. Renowned fashion designer Oscar De La Renta first rose to international fame as a couturier for this iconic and fashionable first lady. No, it's not Jackie Kennedy, is it's it? It's totally Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> That seems way too old. Simon, director James Cameron shouted, I'm the king of the world! <laughs> after winning Best Director for this film, which tied the all-time record with 11 total Oscar wins. Titanic. Very nice. You know why I know that, Chad? Why what was that? First pair of boobs I saw. Titanic. You always got something, don't you? I will, yeah, man. By the way, Totally appropriate. You would say that. And I would say, I saw that movie, walked out of the theater, was crying hysterically and ran into a woman I went to college with I hadn't seen in four years. <laughs> Perfect. Simon, four years ago this month, Oklahoma City Thunder guard Russell Westbrook logged his 42nd triple-double of the season, breaking the 55-year record set by this iconic star nicknamed the Big O. Is it Oscar Robertson? Oscar Robertson. I will give it to you because he was close enough and I know in your heart what you meant. Thanks, Chad. Uh, well, I'm here for you, buddy. Simon, the popular packaged meat brand Oscar Mayer promotes itself with a fleet of these iconic vehicles first introduced in 1936. One summer, our producer, Matt Mitchell, drove this vehicle around the country representing the Oscar Mayer brand. Like you're talking about the Oscar Mayer wiener, like hot dog car thing they drive around? Matt Mitchell, can I give him credit for that? Absolutely not. And I need the proper name, Simon. The proper name for that car. <laughs> um, the Wienermobile? Yes! Well done. Oh, my God. Also, one summer uh, in the suburbs of Chicago where I grew up, I ran a hot dog cart selling hot dogs, and it was Oscar Mayer. Chad Millman is proud of himself. Michael, are you ready? You've been very patient. This is, been this is tough. I mean, they just did incredible work. 
They did incredible work. They are both nailing it. It's the best Simon has ever done. I expected sure. nothing less from. Kim. I also I would like to point out uh, when I was a freshman at USC, I was a seat filler at the 1998 Academy Awards, which for the 1997 movies was when Titanic won. Love Titanic. Great night. Great Oscars. So you were in the building. Yeah, I watched it happen. Whose uh, seats did you have to fill? Who was the most famous? It's a, that's a great seat? question. So, you know, they tell you right as you line up outside of the auditorium and right as the show starts, they say, you're just going to take any open seat you can find. I went about 14 rows back from like the right side facing the stage. And I sat next to this older gentleman. And I realized after about five minutes, it was Army Archard. Army Archard is not alive anymore, but Army Archard for everybody listening was the most famous like reporter for this publication Variety for like 70 years. So I sat with him, the show started, you're like 40 minutes in and I started talking to him and he told me that his wife wasn't feeling well and his wife didn't come. So I took my like placard that they made you wear around your neck. I took it off, I put it in my tuxedo pocket and I stayed the entire night. I sat with Army Archer for three and a half hours. Now, the downside of that is my buddy I went with, he sat in like five different seats through the night. He sat next to like Julie Christie and like all these famous actresses. <laughs> but it was super fun to just like have a seat and be there. I was basically sitting behind Matt Damon's uh, parents the whole night. So that is because <laughs> that's when Matt Damon and Ben Affleck won for Goodwill Hunting. I feel like that is one of the most sought after positions as it comes around to Oscar week. You were a college student. You were a seat filler. You were wearing a tuxedo. Yeah. Did you rent? the tuxedo or did you own it? Great question. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I am from, I worked at a tuxedo shop. And so I was home for spring break and I went to the tuxedo shop and I said, hey, um, I'm going to go to the Oscars in two weeks. Uh, could I get a tuxedo from you guys? Then you can say that one of your tuxedos was worn to the Academy Awards. So that was the tuxedo I was wearing. And therein lies the early learnings of how to be a manager and an agent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. In 1993, Michael, Al Pacino was nominated for, but did not win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his role in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. What you're hired for is to help us. Does that seem clear to you? To help us, not to fuck us up. But he did receive his first and only Oscar that same year, winning the Best Actor Oscar for his role in this film. All right, so Son of a Woman. Now, again, technically, that is the year of 1992, but it's the Oscars that uh, that aired in 93. Now, that was his eighth Oscar nomination. If you want me to name the other six that preceded Glengarry Glenn Ross and Son of a Woman, I'll do it right now. If you I would like you to do it, and I will give you extra credit. Okay. 1972, Best Supporting Actor, Godfather. 1973, Best Actor, Serpico. Hoo-ah. 1974, Best Actor, Godfather 2. 1975, Best Actor, Dog Day Afternoon. Now keep in mind, that is four straight years the guy is nominated for an Oscar. I mean, that's pretty unprecedented. 1979, Best Actor nominee for Injustice for All. So that's five. The sixth nomination is 1990, Best Supporting Actor for Dick Tracy. The seventh is Glengarry Glenn Ross, which is 92, Supporting Actor. The eighth is Son of a Woman lead actor he wins 92 and then he finally got his ninth last year with the irishman so he's been nominated nine times now i can't decide if you're super fun at parties or totally insufferable <laughs> uh your I second know. question yes after a network of gamblers bribed him with five thousand dollars star outfielder 
Oscar Happy Felsch became a key figure in a plot to intentionally throw the World Series, a massive scandal commonly referred to by this nickname. It's the Black Sox, right? The Black Sox scandal. Very good. Which was a movie, a movie called Amen Out, made by John Sales. Third question. The classic preparation of veal Oscar is veal cutlets topped with crab meat, blanched asparagus, and this more commonly seen on Eggs Benedict. Oh, so hollandaise sauce. Part one, here is the prompt. Ready? The prompt is, since the dawn of the motion picture, professional athletes have found their way onto the silver screen. And whether you were moved by the seminal performance of Shaquille O'Neal in Kazam, or were overcome by subtle technical brilliance of Dennis Rodman in Double Team, all American filmgoers agree we need more film roles for athletes. Your task is to remove an actor from a famous starring role, substitute in an athlete of your choice. Tell me on why your choice would achieve the most ridiculous results imaginable. For example, a young Haley Joel Osment from The Sixth Sense, take him out and replace him with a fully grown Jerome Bettis as the child who sees dead people. Are you ready? Simon? I am so looking forward to your answer on this. Thanks, Chad. Uh, yeah, and I also try to skew it towards you because I know how much you love yourself. So I know if I give it a little bit into Chad's life, he usually gives me the point. So don't know for what this you're one, talking it felt, about. <laughs> it felt pretty easy. The fridge, Perry. I would love if he was the Terminator. Just the thought of him on that motorcycle <laughs> shooting a shotgun with a little white kid on his back would just be amazing visually. So the fridge is the Terminator, which to me would just be amazing, especially for that time period. That just would have been an amazing combo. Here's what I love about what you just did. You didn't just take like an athlete of today and put him into any random movie. You matched time period with very happy, very smiley, wonderful athlete who would like be the perfect comedy antidote to what the Terminator needed in that specific era. Love it. Love it. What does William Refrigerator Perry think of the Pontiac Parisienne? You open the door, the light goes on. Michael and Katie, you guys are screwed. There's no way you're topping that, but Michael, you can try. Well, first of all, I'd like to point out, ironically, maybe Simon knows this, that in the original Terminator, they wanted O.J. Simpson. So th speaking of, you know, football players uh, before they cast Arnold. Wow, um, that I did not know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So... <laughs> I was thinking about this last night and- uh, By the way, can I, I just say one thing? Can I just say one thing? Please. He would have killed that role. <laughs> Shame on you. Okay, so I was thinking about this last night and I was trying to connect back to my youth and something connected maybe to my family. So, okay, my pitch is Bubba Smith, who played Hightower in the Police Academy films, which probably anybody under 30 has never seen, but you know, he won a Super Bowl, the Baltimore Colts, and he went to Michigan State where my father went to college. And I thought it'd be funny if Bubba Smith played, now this connects back to the Oscars, if he took over the role that Robin Williams played in Dead Poets Society, which he was nominated for an Oscar for in 1989, because Bubba Smith like d cannot emote and only has like one phase of his, you know, speaking. I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. But I have to work hard on it every day. But remember, in order to get to it, you've got to go through it. And to see him play this incredible teacher who's inspiring all the kids and so forth. And I, by the way, I always loved Bubba Smith. He sadly, he died um, of like hypertension. 
uh, in his house like 10 years ago. Police Academy, th- those were all brilliant. Kudos for uh, getting even closer to my heart than Simon did. Um, <laughs> and uh, seeing him like trying to get Ethan Hawke to stand <laughs> on a desk in Dead Poet Society would be outstanding. Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. That's, that's high comedy. Simon, I don't know, man. He's giving you a run for his money. And I like, <laughs> he had many layers there. He, he connected it to his family. He connected it to sort of what would be the complete antithesis of what that role required. Katie, that's a tough one. I know, but it seems like we might've saved the best for last on this one. Wow. Uh, so the bar I was using for this when thinking of an athlete was who are athletes who obviously are very athletic, skilled at their game, but don't look like they are actually athletes. Nikola Jokic, for example, looks like he plays basketball in flip-flops. I'm not using him. I'm going to use Vince Wilfork because I think he'd be funny in pretty much any role. But the role I have chosen for him is as Ralph Macchio, or replacing Ralph Macchio <laughs> in The Karate Kid. <laughs> I think that means oh I won. God. I don't even know what to say. That is, I'm in the middle of Cobra Kai right now. Now all of a sudden I started thinking about Vince Wilfork as like the older dad in Cobra Kai. Oh my God, Vince Wilfork getting lessons from Mr. Miyagi? Katie. It would sell Man. out. Bestseller. That is <laughs> Box really, office hit. That is really good. Coming on strong. Simon, how do you feel about Katie's answer? Honestly, like I, I like both their answers better than mine. Uh, I, do too. I would say Katie's is funnier. That's funny. Like Vince Wilfork, like she said, he's athletic. You can watch the hard knocks back in the day. He was kicking field goals and cowboy boots. He is an athlete. So I, I like that pick of Vince Wilfork. Michael, I'm sorry, man. She won the round. First of all, uh, I thought it was a brilliant answer. Love Karate Kid. I have finished Cobra Kai and Cobra Kai is amazing. And again, as a kid from the 80s, what those guys, uh, Herbert and Sloshberg and Josh Heald did to that, actually really brilliant. People talk about it in our business all the time of like a new, unique way of, of reinventing something. Really clever. Katie wins that round. Nice job, Katie. Uh, part two. All sports bettors know the phrase bad beats, but fans of the Oscars are also familiar with defeats pulled from the jaws of victory. But whether it's award season or your favorite team's postseason, it feels like some bad beats made everybody Mad. Let's highlight a few. Katie, golfer John Daly's uh, began his golfer John Daly began his rise as the PGA Tour's antihero with his win at the '91 PGA Championship. One man not celebrating was second place finisher Bruce Litsky. It was the closest he'd ever get to winning a golf major, although he was once on the winning side of this biennial golf competition between Europe and the United States. The Ryder Cup. Correct. Wrap it around. Simon, many grown-ups inside and outside of Hollywood were mad when the Academy gave 11-year-old underdog Anna Paquin the award for Best Supporting Actress in 1994. Paquin's underdog win came over the likes of Oscar winners Emma Thompson and Holly Hunter, as well as this actress, the only Oscar-nominated performer on the Netflix show, Stranger Things. No way you're getting this. You are not even in the ballpark of getting this. I should know it because I used to love Beetlejuice as a kid, man. Like that was one of my favorite movies. Is it Winona Ryder? 
Oh my God. You totally got it. Yeah, dude. I used to love Beetlejuice as a kid. I know like I probably shouldn't have been watching that as like an eight and nine year old, but oh my God, I love that movie. Well done. Michael, the January 1999 NFC Championship became one of the most devastating upsets in NFL history. Despite a 15-1 record and an electric offense led by all-pro quarterback Randall Cunningham, this team lost to the Atlanta Falcons after kicker Gary Anderson missed a field goal for the first time all season. <clears throat> okay, so 1999. See, I was going to say you would think it's the Eagles because of Randall, but no, wasn't it the Minnesota Vikings? They were 15-1 and that year. And Anderson hasn't missed in two years. So that's a pretty good bet if you say, do you think Gary Anderson will make this field goal? The answer should probably be yes. 39 yards away, and it's not good. It was the Minnesota Vikings. Look, that that's a little, you know, well, you didn't know because my father's from the Bronx is that we were big NFC East people, even in, well, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because of the Dallas Cowboys, who we hated. But everybody in Tulsa in that area, they all they all adopt the Cowboys. So we were rooting for the Giants every Sunday. Just always hated the Cowboys. Here's my question. Your dad is from the Bronx. How do you get to, how to Tulsa? Ends up at Michigan State and then <laughs> yeah. goes to Tulsa. Uh, the Army. He was in the ROTC and then he went to Korea after the Korean War and then he still owed them like two years. They sent him to Fort Sill, which I think is in Lawton, Oklahoma. So then in the early 60s, him and his army buddies would go into Tulsa on the weekends to like go to bars and meet girls. And, you know, he liked Tulsa. It's a really pretty city. It's kind of like Pasadena for people from California that are listening. And um, he stayed. He got a job and he stayed and that was it. And then he met my mother through his sister at a wedding like seven years later. And she moved from Boston to Tulsa and my brother and I were raised there and that's it. I've only been to Oklahoma once. Kingfisher, Oklahoma. Okay, sure. I covered a rodeo there. Okay, that sounds right. And it was fantastic. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I love Oklahoma. Oklahoma City, I think they have a whole area where it's just brick road, where it's all bars on this one street. Especially I went when the Thunder were good, where it was like, oh, you went to a Durant, see Westbrook, and you just walked to the bars. I was like, you know what, Oklahoma. My One of my childhood best friends is this guy, David Holt, who's the mayor of Oklahoma City. And we sort of have this rivalry because I'm from Tulsa. He's from Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City has just been lapping Tulsa for the last 15 years. They got the Thunder, obviously, but they've also just done what you're referring to, I think is called Bricktown. And they've just done all these incredible projects in their city to like boost the city. And, you know, they built a new convention center. So it's a sore subject for Tulsans. Um, but David is doing, he, he will listen to this at some point. He's doing an incredible job. David does what is right, uh, <laughs> uh, despite uh, being the mayor in a red state. I'll leave it at that. I feel like Michael is the Forrest Gump of this podcast. Somehow... <laughs> He like is connected to all of these things through the course of time and history. Uh, and I think that's utterly charming. Katie, you're up. One of the most bizarre out of nowhere wins in Oscars history occurred in 2017 when a film was incorrectly announced as the winner of Best Picture on stage. The embarrassed presenter was Warren Beatty, one of the most successful figures in Hollywood history and the producer, director, and star of this 1990 film based on a comic strip, which was nominated for seven Oscars. Guys, you got to give me trivia for the years I was alive for. <laughs> nope, that's, this is your punishment for being young oh, and successful. Brutal. You get harder questions. I'd like to point out, I, if I, I've already named this movie earlier in the podcast. Yes, you did. 
Al Pacino was nominated for an Oscar for his role in this movie. Oh, I hate it here because I forgot. Wonderful phone a friend moment. And I have completely dropped the ball by having terrible retention. So far, nobody's missed any questions. So you might have to miss a question. I can't I can't even give you more clues. Comic strip 1990 movie. I have no idea. Doesn't your work mean anything to you anymore? Have you no sense of pride in what you do? No sense of duty? No sense of destiny? I'm looking for generals. What do I got? Foot soldiers. I want Dick Tracy dead. Dick Tracy. That's not even in my brain. All right. There you go. (laughs) Simon. Inside the Tokyo Dome in 1990, a massive upset seemed to depress just about every boxing fan in the world when this 37-1 underdog knocked out Mike Tyson, the undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Who was the underdog? Oh, God, I should know this because of the gambling aspect. It was like one of the biggest underdogs ever in boxing. I know it's Buster. Is the last name Douglas? Buster Douglas? It is, but I can't believe like that it's not so prominent in your brain. Like, I was born in 1990. I get it. I get it. But like you're you're a sports fan. This is one of the most iconic moments in sports history. I know it's depressing. I feel you on that. But I could tell you about some rapper right now. And you'd be like, I know who that is. I'm like, that guy's been number one on the billboard for two years. So that's just how age works, buddy. Don't try to make me feel uncool. Don't make this about me. OK, you too old. You're just an old man. Michael, at the 2019 Oscars, underdog Olivia Coleman defeated minus 450 betting favorite Glenn Close for best actress. It was another close but no cigar moment for Glenn, her seventh Oscar nomination without a win, including a Best Supporting Actress nomination in this 1984 baseball film. The film is The Natural. Uh, now, also, Glenn Close, who, like, you know, been a, a stage actress, nominated for three Oscars in a row as she, like, entered movies. So it's like 1982, World According to Garp, 1983, The Big Chill, 1984, uh, The Natural. And then she gets nominated again in 87 for Fatal Attraction for Best Actress, and then 88 for Dangerous Liaisons. I think Olivia Coleman's amazing. Yeah. She won for- um, the, uh, the Favorite. The Favorite, which I got to tell you, despite sharing a name with this podcast, I didn't love. My, my take on that, I mean, I adore, obviously, Glenn Close is amazing. Olivia Coleman is amazing, incredible on The Crown and a lot of other stuff. I think the thing would happen there is that the wife- that movie was like being manufactured to win her an Oscar. The movie was good. It felt a little bit like a TV movie. And the favorite, I think, was just kind of greater than the sum of its parts because of all the great acting and the filmmaking. I actually think the Academy in that moment sort of felt like we don't want to give it to Glenn Close for this. We want to give it to her for something that is more deserving. And, she, you know, she's going to lose again on Sunday with Hillbilly Elegy. I mean, the, the grandmother in Minari is probably going to win. So, look, Glenn Close is a legend. She seems... From, you know, she has got a pretty public persona now on Instagram. She seems to be really cool and really kind of get, you know, the joke. And she, she's fine. She will get an Oscar for something. She'll be deserving. And Olivia Coleman also up against her again this That's Sunday. right. That's right. Glenn Close, also the most nominated actress to not win an acting award thus far. Yeah, I think. That's right. Olivia Coleman, I have probably watched more Olivia Coleman during the pandemic between The Crown, The Favorite, and Broadchurch than anything else. She's amazing. She's everywhere. And she's on Fleabag uh, in the second season. I mean, she's- That's uh, right. Incredible actress. All right, here we go. Some Oscar-winning, this is the prompt. Some Oscar-winning films age better than others, and some just make people matter and matter. If you could go back in time and hand one Oscar-nominated film its rightful award, 
what would you choose and why? Michael, you're first. All right. So I was I, when I thought about this yesterday, I was going to uh, say Pulp Fiction to win Best Picture over Forrest Gump. And we've kind of already discussed that earlier on the podcast. Uh, but that, you know, I was 15. Pulp Fiction changed my life. And I Forrest Gump, I thought was incredible, too. But it always bummed me out the Pulp Fiction loss. But I'm going to I'm going to augment the answer. And it's going to connect back something to Chad we talked about earlier. And I think people will be surprised by this. I'm going to pitch something that actually wasn't nominated that should have been nominated. And believe it or not, in 1992, A Few Good Men, which was the movie that like really changed my life that I saw five times in the movie theater, um, Aaron Sorkin was not nominated for the screenplay. And I was always like befuddled by that. You know, I mean, I don't know if it's because it was his play that he adapted and they thought, well, who cares? Although they made tons of changes to turn it from a play to a movie. And I just remember thinking like, how could this not be nominated for screenplay? Like it, 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 it epitomizes screenplay. All it is is people talking. Um, that whole year was like a weird coming of age year for me because I was like diehard, a uh, few good men, didn't understand why I was losing to Unforgiven. And then in college at USC, I wrote a paper on Unforgiven and I was like, Unforgiven's the greatest movie ever made. Now I, now I get it because <laughs> I had grown up a little bit, but um that, that I'm still giving you two answers. Pulp Fiction should have beaten Forrest Gump and A Few Good Men should have been nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay in 1992. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I like your creativity. I like your, how you're going outside the box. I like that you're bringing up Aaron Sorkin and A Few Good Men, uh, which is an automatic must watch. I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You are going to be hard to beat in this round. Katie, you can try. Uh, you know, I don't feel super confident now with that intro, but I'll do my best. So my personal answer to this is that Get Out should have beat Shape of Water in 2017. That's the movie I feel like people that has stuck with folks for the longest. And no offense to Guillermo del Toro. I just didn't think Shape of Water was the best of the year. Um, but my actual answer, because I'm pandering a little bit to both you and listeners, um, Saving Private Ryan over Shakespeare in Love. Can't remember what year it was. It was like 96, maybe. Listen, it's a good answer, but it's a cliche. It's also very obvious, yeah. It's a total cliche. I can't give you credit for that. Simon. Uh, so we actually already talked about this. Uh, Titanic. People love that movie. But do people realize that Con Air came out that summer? And when I think about star power and great movies, Con Air, man. Nicolas Cage just oozing sex. I mean, all the actors in that. There's so many big names in Con Air, especially compared to Titanic. Sorry, boss. But there's only two men I trust. One of them is me. The other's not you. And how it was shot, the budget of it. I know everyone talks about the budget of Titanic. Let's talk about the budget of Con Air. Unbelievable, all the stuff they did in that movie. So a name that should have won the 1998 Oscars, it's got to be Con Air. Listen, that is a really, that's a powerful answer. I do love it. I feel like Con Air, like in the form of air-driven disaster movies, can't hold a candle to Armageddon, which probably also deserved an Oscar. And so I'm going to have to give you no credit for that. And I'm giving Michael the win because he pandered significantly better than either of you. <laughs> By the way, for the, thank you. For the record, Katie, I did think about Saving Private Ryan. It's 1998, but I did think about that last night because I do think 
especially in the Harvey Weinstein, you know, Me Too era, like right. a lot of people already felt like Private Ryan should have won. And then because the interesting thing, Chad, if I might, um, if you may, about the 1998 Oscars. And there was there was an article about this recently. Somebody was telling me about that is the year they look back in history as that is when like hardcore campaigning started. And it was started by Harvey Weinstein, where they were like uh, not just getting people to see their movie. They were poisoning the well about other movies. I think Shakespeare in Love is a brilliant film and it won a lot of Oscars that night. So it wasn't necessarily undeserving, but I've watched them both since. And Same Private Ryan, I think, is a better film. Simon, I couldn't agree with you more. Con- I thought you were going to say L.A. Confidential because that lost to Titanic, but Con Air is a masterpiece. So good on you. That was a joke. I'm glad you told me. Now I got to get back to the plane. I would love to get your take, Michael, on Nick Cage, because I have a friend who is presently watching every single Nicolas Cage movie ever released, which is a surprisingly long list, and now has a, the hottest take that Nicolas Cage is the most underrated actor in history. So he I would is. love He's for you to weigh in. He's an incredible actor. The weird thing about Nicolas Cage, I, I got to go on YouTube and find this. He, he wins the Oscar in 95 for leaving Las Vegas. He's like on a red carpet somewhere. It might've been at the Oscars. And they're literally like, what do you want to do next? And he says with the straightest of faces, I want to be an action star. And then he goes to the gym, he gets ripped. And then he does uh, The Rock um, next, which is a masterpiece. I mean, one of, I saw that movie four times the week it came out. I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's the only movie to ever pull off the Die Hard formula. That and Speed are the only two movies that kind of, I think, evoke Die Hard in the right way. But no, Nicolas Cage is a genius. He's, I mean, you know, he's got his own issues, which have been heavily documented. But he's a great, great actor. Also, he won an Oscar. You can't be underrated if you win an Oscar. Yeah, that's right. He, he made a different path for himself. All right, part three. Here we go. Good sports, bad sports. Movies are great. Sports are great. Unfortunately, sports movies are not always great. I will ask each of you two questions about a sports movie. One good, one bad. Speed round here. Simon, remember the Titans is a good sports movie. But in the film, player Alan Bosley is not good. Despite earning player of the week five times, he gives up two catches on the first drive of the season and gets benched for a guy who's never practiced playing cornerback. The role of Bosley was a big Hollywood break for this young heartthrob, a two-time Oscar nominee and star of the movie, The Notebook. Uh, this is why I hate the Thunderdome is I could, I've seen this name a million times. Now I can't remember. It is Ryan Gosling. Beautiful. Thank God. God. I love him. I fucking love you for knowing that. Michael, as an Oscars expert, we'll make this one harder for you. The Champ was nominated for Best Picture in the 1930s. The Quiet Man, a movie about a retired boxer, was nominated in the 50s. Uh Okay. Since then, the Academy has nominated four boxing movies for Best Picture. For one point, name the two that won Best Picture. For two points, name all four movies nominated. Okay, the two of the one best picture was Rocky in 1976 and Million Dollar Baby in 2004. The third one is Raging Bull, which was nominated in 1980. And then the fourth boxing film, hmm, I just have to think for a second. You want a hint? Sure, I'll take a hint. The, win- the winner of Best Supporting Actor came from this movie in the last 15 years. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, of course, The Fighter. Uh, Christian Bale for The Fighter. How about me knowing that clue without even getting anything in the script from Matt Mitchell? <laughs> Great question, because I don't even know, I'm not knocking the question. I don't even know if you think of the fighter as a boxing movie per se, because you think of the family, you know what I mean? Yeah. You think of the sisters and you think of the drug addiction, but it is a boxing movie. You're right. It's a really good boxing movie. It's a great boxing movie. 
Katie, Air Bud is a 1997 film about a golden retriever who plays basketball. It spurred four sequels, each one more embarrassing than the last. I will now list the whole franchise for fun. Air Bud, Air Bud 2, Golden Receiver, Air Bud World Pup, Air Bud 7th Inning Fetch, Air Bud Spikes Back. The original film starred Buddy, a dog who became famous in real life by appearing on this famous host's network TV show, which occasionally featured pets performing inane tricks. But you won't find anything in there that says a dog can't play. He's right. Ain't no rules that the dog can't play basketball. First of all, Airbud is right in my wheelhouse. I was born in 94, so the Airbud franchise carried me through childhood. Second, I have never really watched network talk shows, so <laughs> I have zero clue who has a dog. I know it can't be Fallon. I know it can't be Kimmel. I have to guess it's either Jay Leno or, um, oh my God, Letterman. Is it Letterman? I'm going to go with Letterman. Oh my, I don't want to give it to you because like Letterman is so anathema to your ability to think about like late night TV shows, but yes, it's Letterman. Hey, his Netflix series was great. Enjoyed that quite a bit. Crap. It was crap. It was (laughs) self-indulgent. He wasn't the same Letterman. It was terrible. Simon, the 2001 film Summer Catch is a very bad sports movie. The summary is quote, a rich girl summering in Cape Cod has a romance with a local poor boy who hopes to become a major league ball player. It starred Freddie Prinze Jr. And this actress, Esquire Magazine's Sexiest Woman Alive in 2005 and the Wife of Justin Timberlake. That's a horrible review. That's a great movie, especially when you're in love and it's Jessica Biel. I feel like that was her big sexual breakaway from Seventh Heaven. So I I definitely remember the shift of me watching her on daytime TV to her making out with Freddie Prinze Jr. I was like, wow, this is aggressive. We are learning so much about Simon's history with uh, the ladies through his movies with Titanic and now Jessica Biel and Seventh Heaven. Michael, this should be right up your alley. The trade magazine Variety, where Army Archer worked for many, many years, called the 1978 film Here Come the Tigers, a direct ripoff of the Bad News Bears with dull directing and awful acting. This G-rated pile of crap was directed by Sean Cunningham, better known for co-creating directing this famous 1980 horror film about an abandoned summer camp. Um, an abandoned, okay. I mean, that has to be Friday the 13th. It is Friday the 13th. That was a good uh, question. That, that was twisty. It was, the, yeah, well, Matt Mitchell's, he's got a gift for this. Katie, the 1991 film A League of Their Own is a great sports movie and its poster features three of the film's stars. One is an Oscar-winning actress. Oh my God, this is great. One is a two-time Oscar-winning actor. The other was an international superstar who performed the Oscar-winning song Sooner or Later from the movie Dick Tracy that same year. Name all three stars. This is really embarrassing, actually, because I did an oral history for A League of Their Own at uh, ESPN, where we interviewed like the screenwriters and a bunch of other folks, and I just, you know... Okay, it's Gina Davis. I know it's Madonna. And then who's the third? You're missing. I don't know the third. Tom Hanks. I don't know the third. That's embarrassing. Yeah, no, that's probably the easiest for anyone else. Now you start using your head. I mean, Tom Hanks (laughs) might as well be Orson Welles for you. That, you know. If it were Chet Hanks, I would have got it immediately. It's true. White Boy Summer. (laughs) 
Exactly. So, all right, here's the prompt for the part three. Some of the worst movies of all time have been based on a true story. Give me your pitch for the worst sports movie imaginable based on a true story from the last five years. Katie, you're first. The opening series between the Rockies and the Dodgers this season, there was a feral cat that ran onto the field. There are tons of feral cats at Coors Field, which I live like blocks from. So my idea is to have a movie about the journey of this feral cat after it was collected by the security guards. Apparently it escaped from them. Where did it go next? Did it hop on a train at Union Station right up to the Rockies? I don't know. I'd like to find out though. I got a title for you. What is it? How about the movie nobody's ever going to want to fucking see? No, I saw it all over your face. It was not it was not landing <laughs> at all. <laughs> uh, Simon, save us from Katie's like horrible idea. This would this would get her kicked out of a pitch meeting in two seconds. That's the whole point, though. It's supposed to be the worst sports movie. So I think she uh, she nailed it. There. That was pretty. It would awful. be super boring, but also <laughs> everyone would take their children to see it. Um, so for mine, I obviously I want to say with pandemic, I feel like that's too easy. So I would love if they did a movie like a like a sad story about feeling bad for the Houston Astros for cheating. Because remember Houston, like they wanted people to feel bad for them. They're like, people are being so mean to us. People are booing us at these away games, calling us cheaters, scumbags. We all hate them. I would love if they did a movie about like feeling bad for the Houston Astros because people would just absolutely hate that movie. It's not bad. That is a terrible idea. But now that I think about it, is it worse than a movie about feral cats at, at the Rockies home stadium? I don't know. Michael, I feel like this could be right up your alley. You've probably heard so many bad ideas. Simon, you're going to love this. So I was, I was going through the internet last night and thinking about what are some weird stories. And what I decided, cannot make this up. I have a very good friend named Todd Waldman, who's from Houston and is the biggest Rockets fan of all time. But my pitch was to do like almost a Robert Altman style, you know, like 30 character, uh, you know, five year story spanning of all the woes of Houston sports of the last five years. So you have three storylines. You have the Astros getting found out for cheating. You have James Harden being unbelievable, but never getting over the hump. And you have J.J. Watt being unbelievable, but being on basically a bad team. So my pitch was sort of just like doing almost like a drama about like the state of Houston fandom because of my friend Todd. So it's so funny that Simon brought up Houston because I was just trying to think of like, well, what are the sad moments, sadly, of sports the last couple of years? And the Astros, I mean, that to me was a big deal because they were like, remember when like they were on the cover of SI and they were like, you know, they're going to be the best for the next three years because of their scouting and blah, blah, blah. And it was kind of all a lie. I kind of love that answer because I know a lot of folks from Houston too. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a bar with friends from Houston who before the Astros won the World Series would talk to me about how, as, and I'm from Chicago, would talk to me about how anything they're going through as Houston sports fans is worse than anything we ever went through as Cubs fans. And it is unbelievably boring to listen to. Uninteresting because Houston's not one of those towns that anybody cares about. So I feel like this is terrible and nobody would want to see this movie. Even like people from Houston might not want to see this movie. Oh yeah. It would make them Awful. feel better about themselves. Michael, I'm giving it to you. Thank you. Uh, all right. We head into the final round. Katie, I'm surprised that you're in last place with six points. It's you're been a strong showing. I can't quite believe you still have not taken into account the human factor. You're this definitely like the smartest of everyone on this 
this show. So this is weird to me. Simon, you're normally in front as we get into the final round. You're only at seven. Michael, you're blowing the field away with 11. So I'm excited for you. This is the last round. You guys each have to uh, tell us how much you would like to risk. So close your eyes, very high tech, close your eyes, hold up your fingers with your wager amount. Here we go. At the 1987 Academy Awards, the song Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now was nominated for Best Original Song. It did inspire a number of sports franchises on their paths to glory. One of those teams was the 1990 Portland Trail Blazers, who played it during home playoff games on their way to the NBA Finals. Unfortunately, something did stop them, the bad boy Pistons, but the song's biggest champions are the 1993 Montreal Canadiens, whose coach heard it on the radio during a losing streak and distributed cassette tapes to every player. Just as the song promised nothing stopped the Canadians on their way to a 1993 Stanley Cup victory over this team, who were led by a player known as the Great One, please submit your answers while we listen to the song. Our answers are in. Okay. Michael, so you're first. You're, well, you're first. One, you go first. The great one is Wayne Gretzky, married to Janet Jones, who was in Police Academy uh, 5 when they go to Miami. I know you know that, Chad. Better known for her role in what other sports-themed movie? Uh, well, it's, uh, is it Vision Quest? No, maybe not Vision Quest. Janet Jones starred in American Anthem, co-starring uh, Mitch Gaylord, and that was in 1986. That's right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Montreal, so the Montreal Canadiens beat. So Gretzky, um, well, at that time, uh, I'm just going to take a yes here. I mean, he I, he played for the Kings, I thought. So I'm going to say the LA, uh, the Kings. You are correct. The LA Kings. There you go. How much did you wager? Five. So you are now at 16. Oh, I also had LA Kings, but I, I put all of it in. I think I only had seven points on that 14. Uh, so you're at 14. Oh, well, you always go all in. So that's pretty good for you. Yeah, finally, this is the only one I've gotten right in six weeks and I, and I lost. <laughs> it's totally true, by the way. It is the first one you've gotten right. Katie, you're up next. I, I played scared. I only wagered five points. My answer is also the Kings, which I only know I'm not a hockey fan because I spent time working at uh, LA news stations and was forced to learn about the Kings and the Ducks. Well, listen, as any good Azusa Pacific grad should know, you do your time at LA news stations and you get to know all about uh, hockey all around Southern California. Super popular. Everyone loves it. Michael, you are the winner. (laughs) Amazing. Highlight of my life. Thank you. (laughs) Listen, this has been an endurance test and we appreciate you taking the time uh, and we appreciate you playing along. You, Michael Lasker, are the winner of the Thursday Thunderdome Oscars edition. Simon and Katie, put your shit in a box. You're fired. (laughs) Listen, before we sign off, here is a word from our fearless leader, Action Network CEO, Patrick Keene. Have you no sense of pride in what you do? No sense of duty? 
All right. This has been the favorites from the Volume Podcast Network. My thanks to our guests, Michael Lasker, Katie Richcreek, Simon Hunter. As a reminder, the volume is now on YouTube. We've got new stuff up there every single day, including clips and interviews from all the network shows. Subscribe to the volume YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the volume. Don't forget to join us this Tuesday for our NFL draft episode featuring former Bills director of player personnel, Jim Monis. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Download on Spotify. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Love you.